Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and our guest today is Jeremy Courtney. And Jeremy is the founder and CEO of Preemptive Love, a relief and job creation community working to end war. Jeremy speaks globally on the integration of activism, spirituality, leadership, and service. His work has been covered by CNN, BBC, Al Jazeera, The New York Times, and he lives in Iraq with his family. Jeremy is on to talk with us about the work he and his family and his organization, Preemptive Love Coalition, is doing in Iraq and in the Middle East and actually all over the globe. But he's also here to talk a little bit about the contents of his book, Love Anyway. Jeremy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So uh, you're one of my heroes, you and your wife and what you do and your organization. And I am excited to have you on to talk about what you do. I want as many people as possible to know what you're doing. And I think part of the reason for that is we are bombarded with so much the change that we're seeing and hearing about in the media in the Middle East is all about war. It's all about fighting. It's all about adding violence to the problem of you know, violence that we don't approve of in the, in the U.S. at least. And you are doing something completely different. And you are unmaking violence. You are, you are on the front lines in the way of peace. And I applaud you. You and your wife are just, uh, you're doing such good work. And so I want to give you a chance to tell your story a little bit and uh, have our listeners here. So I guess to start, it's like, where did Preemptive Love Coalition, how did it get started? What were you doing? Uh, let's just start with that. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of places I could jump into the story, but I'll, I'll just jump in at the point and you can take us wherever you want to go. I'll jump in at the sure. point. We moved to Iraq in the middle of the Iraq war, kind of the, the height of sectarian violence, actually, when it was pretty clear that the American project had gone off the rails. And it was in the context of moving into Iraq with a pretty simple story, if I'm being honest, about who I thought were the good guys and the bad guys and you know what it all meant, that I met this little girl whose father approached me and asked me if I would save his daughter's life. She was suffering from a life-threatening heart defect and all the doctors had left the country who could save her life and hospitals had been targeted and decades of UN sanctions had destroyed the country and Al Qaeda was targeting experts. And, you know, essentially this whole thing had come together to create this dire situation for his daughter. And he appealed to me, would you help save my daughter's life? And I reluctantly leaned into that situation to see what we could do to help. And as we took one small step toward this little girl, more and more kids started coming out of the woodwork. Really more parents started coming out of the woodwork and asking us to help their kids as well. And we started to garner a reputation uh, as those that we were as a family. And then later this kind of community that became an organization. We were the people who who helped these last chance children get life-saving care that they needed. And I think that 
that notion of like being the last chance people and doing hard things and taking big risks on the down and out got into our DNA, was established in our, our DNA as a community and an organization from the earliest days. And so we did that for years, focused primarily on, on providing life-saving surgical care and teaching doctors and nurses, building up medical support systems across the country so that Iraq and Iraqis could stand on their own two feet. But then with the rise of ISIS in 2013, 14, that surgery work and that infrastructure building work that we were doing with the Iraqi government, it just wasn't anyone's priority anymore. Once you've got a, a terror group declaring itself to be a, a new global nation inside your country, mm. ISIS had taken over a third of Iraq and suddenly building up infrastructural hospital systems was, was no one's main priority anymore. Millions of people had been pushed out of their homes by the ISIS violence. And um, we pivoted to start providing emergency support to all those millions of people who had just suffered at the hands of ISIS and the fight against ISIS. When I hear someone tell me that they decided to move to Iraq, I wonder what goes before that. And in your in your new book, Love Anyway, you do recount some of that. And I just want to ask you, you know, you were you were living in Turkey at the time. And one of the things that you mentioned is that your your experience there as a missionary was turning faith into a fight. And that was very defeating to you, I think. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? I think that resonated with me, and I just want to hear more because I think a lot of times, you know, libertarians and Christians who are, you know, we're always out to help people learn the truth, but it can often become that the truth gets in the way and becomes something that we don't we don't want it to. Mm. Yeah, I, I think there are certain worldviews that that appeal to certain types of people more than others, and mm. I. I was the type of person already who was very ready to hear a certain kind of politics, a certain kind of theology, and was just waiting for someone to kind of fill my empty bucket with the kind of fuel that would essentially help me become more ensconced in that kind of person, that combative, young, insecure, overwrought, overreaching 20 year old male that I, I was. And so when those theologies came along and those faith communities got introduced to me and kind of the politics surrounding that got introduced mm, to me, yeah. it, it activated, weaponized, and, and certainly aided and abetted the kind of person that I was probably already going to be anyway. But it gave me a, a veneer of like sort of post hoc rationale justification that I could then cloak myself in to say this this is why I know I'm right because the theology or the the politics already supports probably some of the conclusions that I would have come to anyway without them mm. that's one way of looking at it uh, another way of looking at it to say the same thing differently is just that I was a young coming of age boy man when 9/11 happened I had just graduated from college, got married the next week, and launched out into the world. And I, I was supposed to have it all together, or, or so I thought. I, I was supposed to launch out from college, get a good job, make a family, raise kids, be the head of my household. And then 9-11 happens, and it, 
it shoots a shot through the American mythos in many ways. I, I liken it now to something like the destruction of the Jewish temple that sent a whole nation into exile. Mm. And, and for decades, centuries, arguably, the Jewish people didn't know who they were. They didn't know how they were supposed to be in the world because the, the center of their faith, the center of their worship had been destroyed. I think the U.S. and the American people are still essentially living through that trauma right now today. Because what I think happened on 9-11 is I think our temples were destroyed. Our temple to capitalism and our temple to national defense. And therefore, our faith was shot through. And the American religion has been traumatized and the American psyche has been traumatized by that. And I think we are in a kind of exile period right now where we're, we're overreaching out of that place of hurt and fear and trauma. And I was that guy. I, I was an individual manifestation of that trauma as I set out into the world, trying to be a good boy, trying to live up to the expectations of the men in my life, trying to be a good husband and a, ultimately a good father. I used faith as a bludgeon, as a tool to establish my ego, to establish who I was in the world. So it was, it was largely predicated on other people being wrong and me knowing the truth. But I think at a deeper level, I was just trying to figure out who I was and where I fit. And using feats of strength and rhetorical flourishes and insight, you know, feigned insight were, were kind of my way of just figuring out who I was in the world. I think your reflection on your own experience in your 20s there that you just did and that you carry out in your book is touching doesn't do it justice because I think we all need to mimic what you're doing and, and self-reflect on the way in which what we're saying, doing, acting, what our vocation is as Christians is how's, how does that affect you know the world around us? And you know, you, you picked up from Turkey and went to Iraq because you wanted to make a better difference or a different difference maybe would be one way to put it as well. Um, and y you know, your original, um, book preemptive love you had, I think it was your slogan was love first, ask questions later. And I have, I have used that personally at times where it's been a struggle to make decisions. And, you know, in your, in your book, love anyway, you've shifted your mantra or slogan to love anyway, which I think, uh, reflects the more mature, you, the more mature organization that you're becoming. And I just absolutely love it. In fact, right now, of course, no one can see this. I'm wearing my Love Anyway hat hey. uh, in support of, of preemptive love. Uh, so I, yeah, like I said, I, I just love the way that you approach things. So one of the things that you say, I think it's on your website, it's like, we focus on people, not on issues. And I think a lot of times when it comes to the things happening way over there in Iraq, it's all about the issues and voting the right things and making sure that, you know, we don't vote the warmongers in, into office, which is, would be my audience's goal in terms of if, they, if any of my audience votes, they don't want the warmongers in office. Okay, so that, that's the way they think about it. But you're doing active work there. And so what does your focus on people actually look like? I want to say day to day, but I'm sure it's different day to day. So how about like week to week or like what's going on? Yeah, part of that phrase, we focus on people, not problems, is a way of talking about our organization in a, in a more holistic sense. So part of, part of what you see in the big aid, which is kind of my phrase for like big box humanitarian work, yeah. 
is that it's often depersonalized. And when you get to a certain size, what seems to predominate in the industry is this nicheification of expertise where you'll get like the water expert or the communicable disease expert or the safety and shelter expert. And these experts will often bop around from country to country to country, laying a a global blueprint that they've developed over each new conflict, over each new people, over each new geography. And so the lessons you learn in how to serve masses of people in Bangladesh become the lessons that you apply in South Sudan, become the lessons that you apply in Northeastern Syria. And don't get me wrong, there's some, there are some global lessons to be learned. There are patterns and there are blueprints and there are principles and values that I think we should amass over a, a body of work and a, an era of time. But the downside to it is that you depersonalize the people who are being served and they just become kind of widgets or cogs and every conflict and every people are kind of just largely treated the same. So the issue-based or problem-based approach says, well, people need water. People need disease not to be spread. People need shelter or food. And, and so the, the thing that we're solving for is, is always issue-based food, health, shelter, security. And it can be easy to miss the people in that equation, the people who are actually the ones who need food, the, the people are the ones who need to be protected and, and to know what they need to be protected from or how they need to be protected or what they would even deem to be safety. You have to listen to them. You have to hear their story. You have to know what food in the local context really constitutes care and, and so on and so forth. So when we put people at the forefront, what we're essentially saying is our first programmatic response is to listen. The very first thing we do is show up to listen and to be informed and to be taught and to be told what you want to happen next. And then to listen to your neighbor and their neighbor and their neighbor. And more often than not, people don't agree. More often than not, there's conflicting narratives and, and stories about how we got to where we are today and how we're going to get out of it. It's our job and our challenge then to to hold those things in tension and to come up with a, a response worthy of the complexities of what are being told to us in that moment. But if if your first programmatic job is not boots on the ground, lives on the line, listening, you're essentially just a problem-based organization, not a, not a people-based organization. And, and we've tried to flip the script on that. Would you be able to tell us a story of one of the people that you have helped or, or family? Hmm. Yeah, I, I think one of the people that we've, we've come to be closest to, but it's, it's taken a number of years to get here, is a family of people who belong to this ethno-religious group called the Yazidi people. And I'll just focus in on one couple who are part of this wider family. Uh, Zito is the man and his wife Marwa are our close friends now. We met them five years ago, right after ISIS had rolled up on their village. ISIS had killed her mom and dad, uh, her brother, 
Zito had grabbed like some small gun and tried to fend off the ISIS fighters just long enough for Marwa and the kids to escape. Zito ends up getting caught in the village surrounded by ISIS. He, his cousin who's fighting beside him gets slaughtered by ISIS right in front of his eyes. And Zito eventually hunkers down, hides, and then manages to escape to the mountain where, uh, where his wife and kids are. They go through this long, circuitous displacement refugee journey. They get trapped on the mountain, uh, which was international news for about 15 days. They get trapped up there, surrounded by ISIS. They end up getting rescued by another group of people who's in the news as we record this today. The, the YPG Kurdish fighters of northeastern Syria end up rescuing these Yazidi people from ISIS. And they end up through a, a long refugee story through Syria back into Iraq, they land just outside of our house, just down the street, a few miles. And so we meet Zito and Marwa and their wider family network. And we start showing up for them with food and water and just giving them basics to, to get them through the night, really. And then we show up next week and then we show up a couple days in a row. And somewhere along the way, they just become friends. It's less about helping the refugees. It's less mm. about helping the Yazidis as like a category of people, as a kind of exotic thing to be approached with curiosity. And somewhere along the way, they just become friends. And it, it's more about hanging out with our friends at this point. Our, our friends who are desperately in need, our friends who are at a significantly different place of safety and socioeconomic status than we are, but, but they are our friends. And as happens in friendship, we, we start understanding that our, our handouts aren't doing them good anymore. Our, our handouts are actually starting to keep them in a place of subservience or, or supplication. Mm. Our, our handouts were really good on day one, and they were probably really good three months in. And I, I couldn't tell you where it shifted, but somewhere along the way, our handouts started to become harmful. And what they needed at that point was empowerment. They, they needed to be helped in ways that would let them stand on their own two feet. And yeah. once we started to understand that from them, we, we really moved out of a handout relief era with them and, and helped move into a partnership era where they let us know what they were good at. They let us know what they had skills and passion and capacity to do. And we started taking our handout money and giving it to them as empowerment money, jobs money. How could we help them become shepherds again? How could we help them mm -hmm. start making small business decisions that would earn their own revenue and take our money more as investment capital or, or grant to get a business off the ground rather than a handout. And they started coming to life. They, they moved out of this place of like subservience and a, and a pure kind of poverty mindset and started seeing their own capacity to build their future. And um, it was, it's been an amazing couple of years living in that, that worldview and that era with them. And over the course of those months and years, I was, I was going to the front lines as village after village was getting liberated from ISIS domination. 
And as I would come back as a friend on the weekends and hang out in their home, and we would just shoot the breeze about what our week had been like, I would show them photos of village after village, people getting free. And I started to understand over time that every new village I showed them was actually just making them feel more and more in despair because their village was still under ISIS control. And then even once ISIS was vacated from their village, they, they still basically didn't have access to it. It was this kind of no-go zone. It, it, their village was kind of like a ground zero for ISIS. And so it was treated with extreme caution and it was full of landmines and um, unexploded devices that made it very dangerous for anyone to go into their village. So their village was basically a news blackout zone and they had not seen any images from home. And it became clear this was just a traumatizing reality for them. The more they saw news of other people's villages, but didn't get any visual confirmation of the status of their own homes and their own streets and their own shops, the more it dug them deeper and deeper into despair, even though they were earning their own money at this point, even though they were, they were rebuilding their lives as refugees in exile, what they wanted more than anything was to know when they could go home. And so over time and over the course of just being good friends, my wife, Jessica, finally had the idea of like, we, we have to gain access to their village, come what may, because they will not be able to fully reconcile their life as refugees now if they don't get some closure on home. As long as they hold out a, a certain kind of hope that they will go home, they will have a hard time building a life for themselves yeah. where they are. And we were, we were four years, maybe three or four years into their exile at this point. So imagine living for three, four years thinking any day now, they're going to liberate my village and I'm going to get to go home. Um, you're not going to want to put down roots. You're, you're not going to want to invest in infrastructure. You're not going to want to, you know, go deep where you are. And so Jessica worked with the prime minister's office and basically went and knocked on their village door and insisted to the security military forces that were blockading the village, you have to let us in. And the military figures said, are you crazy, lady? Like, it's, it's full of bombs in there. We haven't even cleared this place out yet. You cannot go in there. You'll die. And she said, essentially, you don't understand. Like, there's a whole village of people who are, who are waiting on news from home and they can't move on with their lives until someone shows them that their houses have been destroyed, that their, their streets are blown up, that, that there is no going home. You have to let me in. And eventually, I mean, let's just say she can be a very convincing force. Um, <laughs> she, she talked her way into the village with the backing of the prime minister's office and she took drones and 360 degree camera equipment in and the, the military forces basically said, look, lady, you're on your own. If, if you want to blow yourself up, your blood is on your own hands. We, we wash our hands of you. And so she did. She let our team in and they, they took phenomenal footage, both drone footage and 360 kind of VR immersive footage of what home looked like for our friends, the status of home today. 
And they brought that footage back out. We stitched it all together, turned it into a full 360 VR experience with um, for use on Facebook's Oculus VR platform. Mm-hmm. And then we we took it to our friends one day once it was all ready, and we we explained to them what we had done. We explained to them what it was going to be like to lower these 3D immersive goggles over their head. We tried to prepare them for the the trauma that it might reignite in their hearts. And what happened in the room that day was just profound, electric, moving, emotional, terrifying. Um, you You've seen some of the footage of that, so I'll just pause here, but... But it was an amazing moment of seeing Jessica's empathy and years of friendship ultimately result in a an unconventional solution that has really brought some some meaningful closure to our friends and frankly to other refugees around the world who have who have learned of what we've done and or who are asking us to do something similar for them. Yeah, I mean, what you're referring to is your Love Anyway film, which you can go to loveanyway.com and and watch. When I watched the film, I remember that was probably the most touching part for me. I think the connection between technology giving aid to the experience uh, that you described there. And and it's actually particularly unique to watch it on film as opposed to just hear you describe it. So I encourage people to go watch that. Hi, this is Carrie Baldwin of MereLiberty.com and a contributor here at the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you haven't heard, I'm debating Walter Block on the question of whether a woman has the right to evict or abort her fetus at any time during her pregnancy. This debate will be hosted by the Soho Forum at 3 p.m. on Sunday, December 8th at the Subculture Theater in New York City. Tickets for this event range from $12 to $24. Seating is limited and will likely sell out. Register now to reserve your seat. You can buy tickets at thesohoforum.org. To hear more about my position, you can visit my website at mereliberty.com slash abortion. So, you know, I see a lot of your footage on Facebook uh, because, you know, obviously I'm a follower and, you know, I get emails and I have to ask because I do filmmaking myself. Hmm. What is it like recording these? I almost feel like who has time to pick up a camera and record what you're doing? Like you guys are doing dangerous things and you're, (laughs) I'm like... I don't know. It just feels like a, a very dangerous place to do a lot of recording. It's just my simplistic mind thinking about that. But I'm sure having probably more than terabytes uh, uh, and upon terabytes of footage that you've had to to look at and have recorded has had an impact on how you see the people. I mean, these are just these are strangers to me, but these are people who you've befriended. These are people who you've carried. These are people who you've wept with. I couldn't imagine what it's like to have that experience of capturing those kinds of things. And clearly it's gone for benefit, but I, I'm sure it's affected you as well. Somewhere along the way, well, let me let me say it like this. I, I'm a very novice, hobbyist kind of filmmaker. Started from my earliest days in Turkey, just wanting to bring people along in kind of the earliest days of vlogging, you know, uh, before we had any platforms for it. Just, I remember trying to figure out the codex and the coding to put video on the internet so that friends back home could get a sense of what Muslims were really like in this post 9-11 world. So I've had a penchant for kind of telling alternative stories for the 15 years that I've lived overseas. 
So I think that's part of it, that it's been in my DNA and therefore was in the DNA of the organization from the beginning. Our very first initiative was a video about a pair of shoes that we were selling to raise money for this very first girl who needed a life-saving surgery. So a, a video was the central piece of how we got started as an organization. And then I think as video got easier and easier to make, easier and easier to upload, once it moved to our phones and you didn't need special equipment to take significantly high quality video, it all just it all just got easier and easier. The, the fact that this was already in our DNA as an organization and it's only gotten easier, I think, is, is part of the story there. The other part of the story mm-hmm. is that, um, like you said, these are not strangers to us. These are our friends. These are people whom we've carried both physically and whom we carry in our hearts. And therefore, it's become somewhere along the way a responsibility to tell their stories. And nothing can convey emotion, nothing can move us quite like video can. And so I think we feel a sense of responsibility to always keep an eye open for, Mm, for, for moments that might move the world, if we could just put it to moving images. The third component that I'd say very briefly is that war is not really what we think it is. It's not all out unabated violence all the time. There's there's always lulls in war and there's always flashes of conflict and flashes of violence. So when we are actively getting shot at, we're probably not thinking about pulling the camera out. But after the bomb goes off and the the mushroom cloud is still pluming in the background, you know, there's a moment there where you can capture that on film before the next bomb hits or before you've fully decided what the next strategic move might be. So I think just the dynamics of war and the dynamics of conflict uh, allow for some of this photographic Mm. and filmmaking evidence, probably in ways that I wouldn't have understand understood was true until I, until I was in the thick of it with our colleagues. Now, you know what you're saying reminds me of something uh, Andrew Napolitano said. I heard him say it like a decade ago or so. Um, and, and his was in the context of uh, capturing police brutality instead of fighting back with your own weapon against police uh, is capturing it on camera. His way of putting it was the camera is the new gun in, in a fight. And what you're describing in a way is like your way of waging peace instead of waging war is to use film. It's one of your ways, I should say. And it just, I could just see the interesting parallel there in that regard and that you're using something that can capture so much. And I I think it has moved the world. I mean, in uh, support and yeah, I wanted to ask the, the support that that people give for the farmer who needs chickens and these, is it start and all the different things like, you know, you can go on your website and support like 40 bucks, we'll feed a family for a week or we'll help start a business that, you know, will help them thrive or whatever. Is it, are these loans? Are they just venture capital one-time gifts? Like how how does that work for your organization? Yeah, they are because so much of what we do, I mean, we exist to end war. That's our, that's our big grand global vision. We exist to end war. And to end war, we are trying to build the largest, most diverse community of peacemakers on the planet, from the Korean Peninsula to Australia, across the Middle East, into 
Mexico and beyond, we profoundly, deeply believe that the more connected we are to each other, the more connected we are to each other's stories, the more that we can hear the canaries in the coal mine and other places across the world, the more we can stop the next war before it starts. So those are kind of our big ways of talking, the big things that we're aiming for, which means necessarily we are working in areas of conflict, trying to change the ideas that lead to war and trying to stop the spread of violence from one person to another or, or certainly one community to another. And in as much as our work includes responding to violence that is already set off, what we find everywhere we go, Iraq, Syria, Libya, our work among migrants in Mexico right now, we find that people have often been forced to flee in the middle of the night without maybe having access to their bank account, with, without being able to even grab their gold that they'd worked really hard to amass over, over their lifetime. And when we meet people on the run, by the time we meet them, they've often been exploited. Um, they've, they've been forced into really bad decisions to save their kids' lives and pay exorbitant fees to just make it out alive. And we often meet them at a time when they have next to nothing. So to us, this extreme vulnerability is different than some of the narratives about, you know, maybe trying to lift people out of generational poverty um, which can afford maybe a, a more long-term approach, maybe isn't freighted with all the emergency trauma and um, sense of being between a rock and a hard place right now mm, in this yeah. moment. So we see microfinance, loans, things like that, giving circles. We see that stuff work more naturally in long-term poverty environments in our emergency conflict environments where entire cities have been destroyed, where genocide has been perpetrated against people, we focus on grant-based, let us give you this and come alongside you in partnership in a way that will help you level up, in a way that will empower you. That's not to say we never talk about and never engage in payback schemes or, or look at investment capital, but predominantly we focus on people who are acutely targeted by violence and we treat them the way we would want to be treated. We, we would probably want a gift of a thousand dollars if we'd been driven from our home and we would want the freedom to spend that a thousand dollars, that thousand dollars to get our family back on its feet without the risk that, you know, someone's going to come threatening us for a, a repayment, you know, when, when frankly, in the midst of conflict, you might be displaced again. You might be driven out of your home a second or a third time. So we don't we don't focus on the loan side of things. We we focus mm -hmm. on the yeah. handout or hand up empowerment side of things. Well, my wife and I have been supporters of yours for years, and in fact, it was you were a speaker at one of our conferences in 2014, and I heard about you, and I didn't get to meet you at that moment. But then later I went and got your book and listened to it and just was touched. And, and I, I, I want everybody to support you <laughs> uh, because what you're doing is like literally unmaking violence in there and, and you're capturing it. Like there's proof, there's stories, there's video, there's people who can attest to what you're doing. And so I want to just thank you for being on with me to talk about preemptive love. Uh, the new book is Love Anyway. I recommend everybody to read it. It's not very long. 
but it is touching. It is there. The chapters are short and which I really appreciated because it meant I could stop and think and reflect and, or I could just keep going, you know, whatever, whatever suited. Um, I'm not a big fan of super long chapters and books. So maybe that, maybe that appeals to me. Jeremy, thanks for, for being on to talk about this. Thanks, Doug. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.